Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I went to having money to free my buddy green, was broke again, you know, turned 30, living in my mother's basement. I used to joke. I was like, I'm just like George Costanza, except I have a full head of hair and uh, a little better looking and thinner. And it felt terrible, but, you know, money wasn't coming in and it was getting low and it was the right thing to do. So I definitely came full circle there, but I learned a lot about myself. I learned about what it really took to be an entrepreneur and ultimately all those experiences led me to my buddy green so in retrospect that was a painful seven or eight years but all good hey there it's light watkins the host of at the end of the tunnel And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, what we do is we tell the story behind the story of change makers who typically started down the conventional path. You know, they took a job for money and then they realized what most of us eventually realize life works a lot better when you feel fulfilled and you're not just working for the money. So they take a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose and we take a look at how things turned out. So my guest this week is a dear friend of mine. His name is Jason Wacup, and he is the founder of the popular health and wellness platform that you may have heard of called Mind Body Green. Jason started his career about as far away from wellness as one could get. He worked as a trader, admittedly for the money, and he started making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but he wasn't fulfilled. And then he became an entrepreneur and eventually he became a traveling salesman and he was flying hundreds of thousands of miles a year. Now, Jason is six foot seven. So imagine being cooped up in coach class, flying hundreds of thousands of miles a year. And that combined with an old basketball injury ended up screwing up his back so badly that the pain became unbearable and Jason had to go see a doctor. And all of the doctors that he consulted with advised surgery, which he was reluctant to do because back surgeries are invasive and they have such a low success rate. And then almost as an afterthought, one of the doctors asked Jason if he had ever tried yoga, which he hadn't. So he gave it a shot. And to his surprise, he ended up going from literally not being able to walk to healing his back completely within six months and no surgery. So Jason started exploring other aspects of holistic living, particularly diet and stress management. And this inspired a new way of thinking about health. And at the time, this is 2009, there were no major platforms dedicated to the combination of yoga and mindfulness and nutrition. And Jason was convinced that that combination of all of those things 
was what people need to understand as a means of creating and maintaining sustainable health. So he did what any entrepreneur-minded person would do after saving his back and changing his lifestyle. He decided to create a platform in an effort to help other people find tools for improving their physical, mental, and spiritual health. And his platform became known as Mind, Body, and Green, which is now considered one of the OGs of the wellness community. So we talked about how all of that started off. It was just a blog and he was working from his apartment. He was the only employee. He was writing one article a day. We talked about how he was being financially supported by his new wife and eventually how Jason was able to grow Mind Body Green from just a few dozen site visits to over millions of site visits a month. His goal was to write about things like chakras and and green juice in a way that made it accessible to the kinds of guys that he used to play basketball with in high school. And Mind Body Green eventually became known for its overall accessibility. And so I would say his mission was accomplished. And as you'll hear, Jason's journey was full of persistence and he also had some lucky breaks, but there were a lot of failures and, and plot twists and the occasional blessing in disguise and it was a fascinating conversation. So I'm excited for you to hear about Jason's backstory and the story of, of Mind Body Green. So let's let's get to the conversation with Mr. Jason Wacom. Jason, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm so honored to have you. You and I go back, but I haven't seen you in person in a little while, obviously. I'd like to start off these conversations talking about childhood. When you think back to young Jason growing up in Manhasset, Long Island, what was your favorite toy or activity? Oh, wow. You're really going back. You're really going to be going <laughs> off the stall for a second as I think about that. But first of all, it's been, you know, I was going back. I was like, how long have I known light? I think we met in 14, yeah. vitalized in 15. And I'm like, holy cow, it's 21. Time flies. Yep. But it's great to be here. I won't. I'll get back to the question. So, favorite toy growing up in Manhasset. I'm 46, so I was a Star Wars type of, type ah. of kid because I actually saw. I, I was like just three when the first Star Wars came out in the theater. So I actually participated in Star Wars. So I was a big Star Wars kid, but I also was obsessed with all sports. But I'd have to go with a toy, probably Star Wars. Yeah, I was a big Star Wars. That was that would be my answer too, Star Wars. Let me ask you, did you do this when you went to like a drugstore or grocery store and you know the automatic doors open? Did you pretend like you were using the force to open those doors? I don't know if I did, but that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> and lightsabers and play did you play with your friends? You have siblings? I, I did play with my friends. My parents got divorced when I was three. I was raised as an only child. I lived on a a block. It was a dead-end block where I was the youngest amongst a group of much older boys. So looking back, I credit being bullied and getting my ass kicked playing sports at a very young age led me to ultimately being a successful athlete. So early on, like what I did a lot of was like play sports with much older kids who used to love just beating the crap out of me. 
you're talking neighborhood sports, not not necessarily organized. When you were a neighborhood, kid, yeah, you know? neighborhood, like young, like you know, street hockey, wiffle ball, soccer, like you you name it, or just like throwing stuff, flag football, optional. Maybe we'll tackle you on concrete, sort of. You know. <laughs> <laughs> now you're six seven. So when did you get your growth spurt? So I was. Born a very average sized baby, but basically grew three inches every year. My mother at one time had all my school photos up. So like nursery school all the way up, I was always the tallest kid and eventually stopped at six, seven sometime like my junior, senior year in high school. I'm like six, seven and a quarter ish. I was always the tallest kid. I'm obviously black, right? So in the neighborhood, when you're a black, tall kid, you're expected to be good at basketball. I wasn't. So I was always the first one picked. And you could see the disappointment in people's faces (laughs) after the first play when they saw that I couldn't really even dribble. (laughs) What about you with your basketball experience? Did you have any kind of natural talent or, or were you like me? I was naturally tall. And you definitely have an advantage being tall. But I, I started playing, I think, in third grade, I started to play organizational basketball. And I was naturally coordinated and good, but I had to work on it. But it became a labor of love. And so it was a game I loved and I worked hard at. Your basketball work ethic, did that come from coaches? Was that self? Were you self-motivated and driven or your dad or who inspired that? Sure. So my father also played basketball in college and definitely helped fuel that passion. But as most kids, you like spending time where you have a little bit of applause. And I was good at all sports when I was young and I worked hard at it. And I think when you're good at something and and people commend you, you feel good about yourself and you generally start to put in more time. And I was, I think I'm naturally competitive And so sports for me, just, you know, I I love sports. I love being active and I was good at it. And like anyone, I I think everyone loves being commended and and applauded at a young age. It just reinforces that positive feedback loop. What did you learn about yourself through sports Uh, at a young age? I think there are a lot of things with sports. I think one, the effort you put in, there's generally a correlation in the result you get. And then, you know, depending on skill level and age, you know, that's when I think the best separate themselves from, you know, the good and the average and so forth, because natural inclination and skill level at a certain point max out for people and for others, they don't. And then when you can marry that God-given ability with work ethic, you have like a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James or a Tiger Woods where where they, they have insane work ethic and insane God-given ability. And then you have a superstar. So I, I think that there is something to be said about working, working hard and, and getting results a later age with basketball. We won a lot. Most sports I played, most teams I was part of all through high school, we won a lot. Then when I played basketball at Columbia, we lost a lot and eventually started to win by my senior year. And I think that's where there were so many valuable life lessons things tend to be a lot easier when you win and when things aren't going your way and when you're losing very easy to point fingers very easy to fall apart and i think dealing with that adversity being able to work with a group of people 
and deal with loss in a way that's that's dignified and productive and actually turn things around and win it was such a valuable learning experience for life for business and so i learned a lot more about life from losing <laughs> than i did from i did learn from winning too but playing basketball was one of the most fulfilling experiences and doing tra- playing and traveling teams when i was younger most fulfilling and most viable experiences in my lifetime. It was also eye-opening for you. You mentioned in your in the book that you wrote, Wealth, you talked about witnessing racial profiling for the first time in yeah. high school. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So I grew up, Manhasset is predominantly, you know, 99% white, predominantly even, you know, white Irish Catholic. I used to joke, I'm, I'm Protestant. I was like an outsider. And so... It was somewhat a sheltered community, and there are pros and cons with that. And what in my teenage years, I was looking for more competition and was so passionate about getting better and playing basketball full time. I played with a, a famous AAU team, the Riverside Church Hawks, which are still around. They're, they're in Harlem. And I traveled with them when I was 15. We went numerous places. One of the places we went was Lubbock, Texas. And this was 1989, I think, or 90. And we went into a mall. And yes, I witnessed racial profiling in a way that I had, I didn't even know what to call it. I was like, oh at the time, and it was just such an eye-opening experience. It was, it was difficult to watch. That, that trip, we were together for, I think, seven nights, eight days, I want to say, all together. I was one of two, I think, one of two white kids on the team from Long Island, everyone else from Brooklyn and Harlem. And I, I saw hardship in ways that I had not seen it before when I got to know some of my teammates in terms of, you know, their households, their struggles to make ends meet, their families, and racial profiling. So it was definitely, we ended up, I think, winning the tournament. <laughs> But it, it was a very sobering and eye-opening experience. Did you talk to your parents or anybody about any of that when you got I remember, back? I remember talking to my mother about like the whole thing. And, and I think I, I walked away feeling extraordinarily lucky and grateful. You know, my parents were then divorced at the time. And I, I in Manhasset, I, I lived in the, uh, you know, the poor side of the town, which was kind of a joke. <laughs> and so I walked away feeling a lot more grateful for what I had and the stability I had in my household and, and that I, I didn't have to deal with some of the racial injustice that my teammates had to deal with. So it was definitely an eye-opening experience. And what did you learn about this cheating scandal that you got caught up in in, in physics class in your senior year in high school? What did you learn about yourself through that? <laughs> yes, there, there was a cheating scandal. Look, I, I think, you know, as we think about kids and even adults, we see this right now in our society, so the, the cheating scandal, I, I think, you know, a, a culture of, of cheating was a very much a real thing in, in our in our high school, in our class, in our group of friends. And the way I thought about it is with kids, with teens, and even with like adults, everyone wants to be liked. Everyone wants to perform. Everyone wants to have fun. And sometimes 
that leads to, to, to really bad things and dumb decisions and no one's going to raise their hand and say, hey, maybe this is a bad thing. <laughs> sort of had that like mentality of, hey, everyone's doing it. It's okay. Let's do it. No harm, no foul. And, and, and that's completely wrong. And I actually see that a lot with, unfortunately, with adults in the world we live in today. And I, you know, I think for me, it's, there are no shortcuts in life, but I think that I hate to use the word mob, but I think there is that like mob mentality where you have a group of people who get together and you're in an echo chamber and you reinforce each other's beliefs. And even though maybe you all think something is is not the right thing or bad, it takes a lot of guts to raise your hand and say, maybe this isn't a good idea and no one does it. And then everyone goes along with it and choose what to focus on with what's going on culture in the world right now. And I think it's happening in adults, very different when you're talking about teenagers who just do dumb things, not that it's forgivable. It's a good reminder of the herd, herd mentality 101, which exists very much so in teenagers. You know, I've, I'll stop there. Herd mentality, is a problem. <laughs> herd mentality is a problem, and it takes a lot of guts for someone to stand up and say, hey, this isn't right. So that screwed up your chances to go to Dartmouth, which is where you initially wanted to go. One of the many things that contributed to, to that, but uh, which ended up being a blessing in disguise. Being a blessing in disguise, I ended up having having being forced. I didn't like it at the time, but do an extra year and go to a prep school, Northfield Mount Hermon, which was a basketball powerhouse, and I really loved playing basketball there, and we. And it was just such an incredible experience, multicultural experience. And it sort of renewed my love for basketball, my, my love for learning, love for culture, and, and so many, so many things. And, and led me to Columbia, which you know, was ultimately the best school for me and, and led me to where I am today. At that point, what did you see yourself becoming as when you got older? Back then... Probably up until my mid twenties, I was definitely consumed with with making money. You know, I, I didn't I didn't come from from wealth, and saw wealth as something that would make me happy, happier, that would afford me all this opportunity to travel and do exciting things. And and then when I got to Columbia, wealth was a vehicle to pay off the college debt because there are no scholarships at Ivy League schools, and so. Even though I had financial aid, I still walked away with debt. And so I saw it as a way to alleviate that college debt that I walked out with in 1998. You also had a string of part-time and side jobs and, and hospitality gigs. What did you learn from those experiences? I did everything. I'm like, I was a busboy. I was, I delivered beer. I waited tables. I worked at a debt, like you name it, I did it. I, I think I, I developed such respect for people in the customer in the service industry, which I think is so even today, you know, so relevant today. I live in a world with COVID and, and that industry is struggling. It's, t- it's tough to be in that industry as is dealing with people all day. It is tough. And I think in this environment, when you're struggling to, to stay open, whether you're, you're doing takeout or serving people outside such an extra reminder to be kind and like I, I try to be overly generous when I can when I tip 
especially now it's like how could you give someone like a bad yelp rating or whatever it is today in this world we're just trying to stay open and just like a bad tip it's just like these people are putting themselves out there and it's such a i I have such respect for for people who bring us our food whether it's sitting at a restaurant or drink or what have you serve us sitting at a restaurant or working for instacart or amazon prime or delivery or whatever it may be and i think people listening probably get this but you know really have been on the front line and have been giving us food you know one of our basic human needs that i think is definitely front and center with covid so we need to think about those people and i don't think enough attention you know there are people trying to rally support around that that industry has just been destroyed you know, think about how we can support those people and, and bring them, bring that industry back. Cause it's, you know, I'm a New Yorker. It's a vital part, part of New York. So it's very, you know, near and dear to my heart. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Ultimately, you ended up, uh, I guess, coming across this book of Liar's Poker. Yes. You got all the notes from the book. (laughs) (laughs) We're going back. How did you come across that book? Do you remember? I don't remember. Liar's Poker, I think, was like a huge runaway bestseller. You know, that's Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis. And so forth. He's just a prolific, successful turn pager of an author. The the book was essentially, it glorified bond trading, it was so well written. And I read that book and I was like, oh man, I want to be a bond trader. This is it. You know, it was very specific. It wasn't just Wall Street, it was, I want to be a bond trader, not trading stocks, not, you know, not trading equities, not trading futures, not trading else. I want to be a bond trader. And so my, my focus became very narrow and ultimately pursued that every which way and did not happen because of the global collapse of the bond market, which happened in 1998. <laughs> Before you get to that, your grades didn't exactly reflect someone who was a hard worker. And, my, and, my, and, my, my grades <laughs> did not reflect that at all. 
And it took you a while to even get any kind of job opportunities, right? Correct. You're just rubbing it in. I love you. (laughs) Correct. I graduated Columbia with a 2.03 GPA, which you needed a 2.0 to graduate. So I may be in go down in history is one of the lowest GPAs ever graduated from Columbia on time in four years on time. What was that about though? Were you just slacking your way through or yeah, what there, was going slack. on? There wasn't slack. There was no wall. <laughs> slack, literally slacking. Yeah. So I was so happy to get to Columbia. I made it there. I, I saw that as like, wow, I've arrived, you know, I'm in a great Ivy league school. I don't have to work. You know, I'll just forget about the work. My father had suddenly died from a heart attack. In March of earlier that year, I started school in September. I think ultimately, I was still dealing with that. And I was already drinking too much. Like one thing, the culture of Manhasset, like heavy drinking culture. There's a great book, the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Tender Bar. He describes Manhasset as uh, lacrosse, the Catholic church, and essentially alcohol. And he, he pretty much nailed it. Was already drinking, partying way too much. And that just like picked up steam at Columbia. And I just had this like carefree attitude where life is short. I'll just get through this. I'll figure out a way to, to get through Columbia. I'm going to party and have a good time. And then I'll play basketball and I'll graduate <laughs> somehow. Mm. And so that was my attitude. I'm going to have the best time of my life in college. You only do it once. And I delivered on that KPI. And then basketball was kind of an afterthought. But then as I basketball winded down toward the end of my, you know, ended up being my career, my senior year. I, I started to really focus on it because I realized that this was it and started to put more emphasis on basketball. So your, your dad died when he was around your age today. Yeah. yeah. How, how did that affect your understanding of long-term success being in college after your dad died? Cause you actually, you had a pretty odd, reaction to that like you didn't cry at the funeral i guess yeah. you had closure in that relationship look I, I think anyone grieving all grieving is different all loss is different and there's no playbook and in retrospect i also talk about in the book I, I lost my grandmother who lived with me and raised me with my mother i was extraordinarily close with much later in life when i was like 36 37 37 that was devastating it took me you know cried and cried just really devastating and she died from cancer even though it happened relatively quickly it was uh, a couple months that were just torturous one of my best friends from high school died at 27 from an overdose that that one really shook me in a way and it was after my father and i think they all felt different with my father there was such a i think there was such a shock it hit me in a different way. There was a deeper spiritual knowing that I couldn't describe it. It was like almost a spiritual experience that I didn't have when I lost other members of my family, my uncle too, someone else I lost later in life. So the best way I could describe it is in my experience with loss and grieving, it's all terrible. They're all different. And you could never predict how one hits you harder than the other. And it's part of life. It's unfortunate. That, that's that's sort of my my view on on grief. It, it's always different. Ultimately, there's no way around grief. The only way is through it. So you will get through it. And sometimes that process is harder up front. 
and shorter. Sometimes the process is, is longer. So there's no playbook. What sayings or life philosophies do you remember your dad sort of echoing in your house when you were growing up that you still remember today? Yeah, you know, I, I think he definitely was a more of a carpe diem type of guy. Probably a little too much though. And I think I try to do that, but I also try to focus on the the bigger picture and the and the future and try to have balance there. And especially with little kids now, it's much bigger than me. Whereas ultimately he uh liked having a good time all the time and wasn't worried about anything in a way that was probably a little reckless. Well, he ended up doing some time in jail too. So my mother and my father got divorced when I was three and they had a second marriage, which failed. He wasn't very good at marriage and hit a very hard rough patch in real estate <laughs> during the divorce and agreed to a settlement, which he ultimately was not able to afford and so could not make payment on alimony and child support to his second wife. There's a saying, hell hath no, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn, and she threw him in jail, which I think scared the hell out of him. He had his first heart attack in jail and then ultimately died from a heart attack. So uh, a very tough experience for him. I can't imagine what that was like. And I think ultimately stress played, a, even though he ate way too much red meat, stress played a significant role in, in him ultimately dying due to a heart attack. That must have really motivated you, though, to kind of see success as having a lot of money so you'd never really have those kinds of issues, right? You know, back then I didn't. Back then I was like, yeah, whatever. He, <laughs> <laughs> I'm invincible. That's not me. Because after he died too, I had all these tests done on my heart and everything to make sure that he, he actually had a genetic risk factor that I don't have. I didn't have any of those things. And as a kid, you think you're invincible. You know, it was like, ah, I'll learn those lessons. I'll be fine. I'm living forever. I'm not him. You know, so, mm. but wisdom ultimately prevails. And you watched all your friends go off and make six-figure salaries. You were bumming around trying to find a job, couldn't get yeah. one. And then ultimately, you landed a job at Heartland. Yes, yes. Ultimately, I became an equities trader. It's funny, I was having a discussion with someone today how what's going on in the market right now in trading is very reminiscent of what I experienced 21 plus years ago. I'm like, oh my God, it's the same world again, except the little guy has a lot more power. And we were the little guy back then, but wow. And so it's, so yes, ultimately became an equities trader at this proprietary trading shop that was a bunch of like, misfit ivy league athletes which is kind of a joke because ivy league you know and the people who couldn't get jobs at goldman or morgan or whatever the big firms were back then they were like if you're an athlete come in their, their whole pitch was you know no suit no ties no coffee you don't work for anyone we'll pay you essentially minimum then you're in, then you're on draw and in three months you got to figure it out or you're fired it ultimately was like a great environment to learn. You figured out how to sink or swim. And so I was an equities that, that, that launched my career as an equities trader. What did it take to be a really good equities trader? Work ethic. I think 
being able to be comfortable with ambiguity. And I think ultimately, which this is actually a great quality for being an entrepreneur. And this is, I think, my biggest takeaway from that life, being able to think clearly about and measure risk versus reward and not be emotional about it. Were those daily decisions you had to make in that like regard? Day, or was it like moment mul- to moment? Mo- multiple times a day. <laughs> multiple sometimes, times. sometimes in moments, you know, mm-hmm. knowing, always, always having, you know, the, always having the bigger picture of what's the risk versus reward. And very often in the moment, it was a muscle that I had to develop very quickly. That's the one muscle I take pride in. And I've, I think ultimately makes you a good entrepreneur. Now, how did that translate into your personal life though? You were dating, I think you had met Colleen in college, I think, but you were still dating around way later. Okay. And I would have never worked out if we met in college. (laughs) (laughs) So were you able to kind of compartmentalize that approach for work only, or did it kind of bleed over into your interpersonal relationships? In my personal life, back then in my twenties, I was, you know, very much wanted to have a good time all the time. And I think it was, you know, I go back to like culture. It's so important. And that was a lot of the culture I was caught up in with my friends from college and my friends I worked with. We did really well financially and had no expenses. They lived in a tiny apartment at $1,400 a month in Chelsea. And, you know, as soon as Thursday night, I'd be out all night, Friday night, be out all night, Saturday night, be out all night. And then Sunday would go to bed early and do it all again. What kind of money were you making? In my second year, I made $800,000. Did that and feel that, like a lot to you? Or it was, I'm like, it still feels like a lot today. I don't <laughs> And so, and it was enough. And that was it. Like, essentially, I was, I had like two full years and then I started to wind down because 9-11 happened and I'll get into that. But Right. I so, guess what I'm asking is, is when you were making that kind of money, did you feel differently inside or do you feel like the same person just with $800,000? You know, like it felt nice to be able to boom, college debt gone, boom, pay off my mother's car loan, boom, mm-hmm. not have to worry about little things, you know. You don't have to ask how much anything is anymore. Yeah. And the only thing, the only expensive thing I ever bought, I bought myself a Rolex. It was kind of like my, my father always wore a Rolex. I, Rolex. I wanted. It was like one thing I wanted. I bought it. I still wear it today. It had meaning to me, but never really did much with it. And I keep in mind, you know, there, there were taxes, so I didn't walk away with that much. But like, you take the taxes out and everything. But it was enough that I didn't have to worry as a twenty-five-year-old. Not enough that I had to retire by any means, but it was enough that I didn't have to worry. And ultimately, a year later. After 9-11, it was a couple blocks away when that happened. And like many New Yorkers living in New York at the time, it was deeply affected by that event and ultimately decided there are other things in life. I, I want to do something else and ultimately led me to walk away from Wall Street and go on this long journey, which started really in like 2004 becoming an entrepreneur and ultimately led to the founding of my money green in 09. You came across some, a Lawrence Jack's quote or something like this. Yeah. You really got everything from the book. (laughs) Yeah. It it inspired you to think differently. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have it's it's something along the lines of like the master of his uh it's about the blend of work and life and how they're one and they're not they're not separate. I'm butchering the quote. But do you was, remember where you saw the quote though? Were you in a bookstore? Or, I, knew, I know you went to Barnes and Nobles a lot. I did. I, I was searching. You know, I think I, I was I was searching. I didn't know what I was looking for. And I think that you know, a lesson for me, and maybe this is helpful for people listening. I think there are a lot of people out there who just know they want, they want something else, but they don't know what. And I think that some people say, I need to wait for like the perfect moment, the perfect time, the perfect thing. And then I'm going to go all in. And sometimes that happened, but very often it doesn't. And I think the journey is about, you know, it's okay to just search and poke and, and, and take that first step if you will, that first step is often the hardest and it can start with like just dedicating yourself to reading or connecting with people who inspire you, but you just have to do something and, and not be a hundred percent certain of where that first step is necessarily going to lead to, but you got to take the first step. And for me, it was like, I dove in the books. I knew I wanted that quote where like life and work were one where with wall street it was like i i worked hard and then boom I, when i was out the door it was out of sight out of mind and i just thought that there was a lot more i wanted to do something that i was really all in and on and, and very passionate about and it was with me 24 7 i have that now and there are downsides to that too but th that's what i was really looking for i just didn't know how that would manifest itself for me so you got to see what life was like with money but yeah. you feel you didn't have fulfillment. Correct. So how did you figure that was going to, what was your, what was your thinking? Like, okay, fulfillment comes from where? For me, I was thinking it was, it was going to come through a career that had more meaning, purpose, and significance for me. That was a big one. The self, I think it would eventually come through a lasting, healthy relationship and I wasn't so settled. I, I had ha had a couple long-term relationships that didn't work out. So I wasn't like dying to get in another relationship. I was like, I need to figure out me. You know, it's like figure out yourself before you can figure out someone else or not figure out someone else, be a great partner to someone else. So for me, it was very much, I got to find my thing. I got to find a career that's going to deliver, th that has meaning, that has purpose, and that has significance. And that was a long journey. It didn't really happen until my buddy green, which was years later right you had been dabbling in some startups investing yeah. money not was, knowing a lot about the industries losing your shirt 100 percent. i went to having money to you know pre my buddy green was broke again you know turned 30 living in my mother's basement i used to joke <laughs> i was like i'm just like george costanza except i have a full head of hair and uh, a little little better looking and thinner and it felt terrible but you know money wasn't coming in and it was getting low and it was the right thing to do so I definitely I, I came came full circle there. So yeah, it, it was a journey. It was part of various startups. One did okay, but for the most part, they didn't do well. But I learned a lot about myself. I learned about what it really took to be an entrepreneur. And ultimately, all those experiences led me to Mind Buddy Green. So in retrospect... You know, it was a painful seven or eight years, but all good. Was Crummy Brothers, was that after moving in with your mom? 
Yeah, the cookie company. Yeah. Yeah, that's where you had the whole my back th- giving out sciatic yeah, nerve. Yeah. This is this is experience. the real. This is the juice. This is where the interview starts. This is the okay. So yeah, it was through. It was a, it was an organic chocolate chip cookie company. We were in every Whole Foods market at the time. So I've been a side note. I've been to like two hundred Whole Foods. The company was in a, was in a tough spot. This was in two thousand eight. We had a huge price increase on ingredients. And it was very tough to raise capital. It was a huge, it was the recession of it was terrible out there. I was flying a ton. I was stressed. And so I flew over 100,000 miles. I tell this story a lot. And this, this is the My Money Green story. I flew over 100,000 miles domestic in one year. I'm six foot seven, me in a coach seat, not good. So the flying, the stress, and an old basketball injury led to two extruded discs in my lower back, L4, L5, S1, an excruciating sciatica in my right leg. I couldn't walk. It was like a lightning rod in my right leg. I, I could only walk maybe like maybe a block and I would just have to stop. And me walking in a great city or in nature is like my favorite thing in the world. And that was taken away. Went to a doctor. He said, you need back surgery. Got an MRI, x-ray. I forgot what it was. He's like, you need back surgery. Nothing against surgery, but generally see it as a last resort because, and the success rates actually are not good. So I sought a second opinion. That doctor said the same thing. He said, you need back surgery. And it was almost like an afterthought. He's like, you know, maybe some yoga or therapy could help. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try a little yoga. Colleen, my now wife, co-founder and co-CEO, we were dating at the time. She had a yoga practice. So I said, you know what? I'll, I'll try a little light yoga. So I started to do five to 10 minutes in the morning and evening a couple of poses, really light, restorative, started to feel better. Started to really pay attention to stress, sleep, nutrition. I was a guy whose idea of nutrition back then was steak and martinis at the Palm Steakhouse. I consumed so much in one year. There is a caricature of me on the wall of the Palm Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan next to Joe Namath and Adam Sandler, which is kind of insane. I still eat meat. Not as much, make sure it's grass-fed and so forth. But and that's anyway, because you spent so much money there. You were there yeah, all the time. Yeah, it was insane. Every day. I went there like not every day, probably like four days a week. And like mm. three martinis, a steak, like I, it was insane. Uh, mm. that was my idea of health. And I started to incorporate more vegetables, more plant-based foods, eased up on the meat, started to look at toxins we were putting into our bodies, you know, the environment. And I made a lot of changes in my life and yoga played a big part of it. And I went from not being able to walk to being fine within six months. And I had this epiphany. I was like, holy cow. Wow. Like I'm so blessed that I'm fine, (laughs) but everyone's got this health thing, this wellness thing wrong. Back then you got to keep in mind now we're like getting in 2009 Wellness was like this very nebulous term where people would equate wellness with, you know, the spa, anything that was in the mainstream in terms of like the, the, mag- the magazine world dominated back then in terms of media. It was like five minute abs, two minute abs, anything that was a little bit more holistic, a little thing that had a blend, anything that had a blend of Eastern and Western was just too new agey, too crazy, only preached the, the choir of people in the west side of LA or Brooklyn or Boulder. And there was nothing out there in terms of content that spoke to a larger group of people that 
wasn't so polarizing. And to me, it was so clear that true well-being, everyone had it wrong, was this blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. Mind, buddy, green. One word, not three. That was the moment where I said, there's an opportunity to create a brand, create a content destination. We started with content where we didn't preach the choir. We were going to build a bigger church and bring people in. And fast forward to 2021, I'm like, oh my God, we're here again (laughs) with media. There are people who cover this stuff who are more holistic, who are just like, whoa, way off in conspiracy land. And then some of the traditional players who've gotten into this become so mainstream. I'm like, here's us again. Right. It's, I can't believe how the world changed so much. And here we are in the same place. So you basically went from very, very extreme. Were you like demoing your cookies in Whole Foods? Is that why you were flying? Oh, yeah. I've been, I, I sit there and demo the cookies. We went to trade shows. Like when I said I've been to 200 Whole Foods, it wasn't just like go in and say hello. Like we right. were doing demos. We were doing sampling. We were making sure they were on the shelf. When you say we, do you mean, did you have a team or was partners, it just you? Yeah, so they're real brothers named Crummy. So like Crump, me and one of the brothers okay. would go to all, we flew together. Like we went everywhere. We made sure the product was on the shelf, which I didn't realize was a thing, but it, it's a thing. If you have a product in a store, sometimes they tell you it's on the shelf, but it's not really on the shelf. So you're shuffling around, barely able to walk on tricker. these. Yeah. You're flying 125,000 miles a year domestic Tri- i always point out domestic when you fly domestic. like japan or china you get all those miles at once when you're flying from like new york to chicago to like knoxville that's hard-earned miles i was doing that hustle for a while too with with uh, american i know you were american premier member I mean, and all I was that united united oh you were united okay united. so you, but you were trying to work your way up to oh, yes. One K. One K. Highest one K. So you can get any basically carte blanche, you know, whatever you need, business class, whatever. But you never, it's interesting because you mentioned something about how, you know, on paper, it looks like, okay, this guy's on the road all the time. He's got his own company. <laughs> you know, he's flying around. You know, he gets to pre check, whatever. But you realize that wasn't really yes. what you wanted your life to turn yes. out. A great, great be. metaphor for life. Don't climb a ladder and then get close to the top and realize you're climbing the wrong ladder. You and, climbed uh, the wrong thing. And I was like, I remember I was getting close. I was getting so close. And I'm like, wait, I, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? I'm like, yeah, I, I, I love sitting in business class because I can actually like sit. It's not about the perks or anything. It's like I can sit comfortably. Right. Huge. I love all that. But I'm just like, this sucks. Like, yeah, what? and you're going to like dollar <laughs> rental cars and checking in at your embassy suites and yeah, you know. And then, I, and then I think we all, you know, once we saw up in the air with George Clooney, I think many of us lost our. Uh, it was very confronting, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, movie. but uh, but yeah, don't 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 focus on climbing climbing a ladder and realize it realizing it's the wrong ladder. You essentially went from that limited mobility to completely healing yourself. Yeah. Within six months with no surgery, no stitches, no, no I, antibiotics, I tried, nothing. I, I tried, they gave me a cortisone. I tried the cortisone shot thing and it just didn't work. And I would have got surgery. I have nothing in surgery. If it wasn't work, I was going to, I was prepared. Like, Hey, if it doesn't work, I'll get the surgery. No big deal. Like I, I have nothing against surgery, but I just didn't want, I wanted to avoid it. <laughs> 
And so was it a thing where you just, because I know you mentioned in the book that because of your basketball discipline, you had discipline with your yoga exercises that your physical therapist gave to you. You would do them on your own morning yeah. and evening and et cetera. Was there a morning you woke up and you were like, I don't feel anything. It, it just over, it, it was, worked it, over time. It just gradually, it was like chipping away at it. And I think like anything in life, once you start to have that positive feedback loop, you start to see some results. It just, Oh wow, this is amazing. I had to keep going. And, and whether it's like anything, whether it's, working out or just anything in life when you start to see that positive feedback it's just so critical and i I started to see it and once you if who knows what would have happened if i were doing it for a month and i'm like i don't feel anything but i started to feel i started to feel like the back move a little bit the pain so the big thing with sciatica is is where the pain hits you so the lower the pain in the leg the worse it is so like for me it was running through the toes the whole leg lightning rod it started to creep up the pain started to go a little bit higher, a little bit higher. So like it was reeling back in. And so I was witnessing in real time, like, oh, wow, the pain's starting to reel back here. And eventually it's like getting to the butt. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm almost at Like, this is, this is real. So it was you had the creaky knees, you had the dislocated shoulder situation. Yeah, you, your body was a mess. Thanks, Light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but you you healed yourself. That's what's so amazing. I, I did. Yeah, I became a huge believer in yoga, the transformative power of yoga, and became obsessed with yoga. And it was a big part of the early days of Mind Buddy Green. But I think what also helped. Look, with healing, yes, I healed myself. But there's always there's something bigger than us. Whatever you believe in. I, I was raised Christian. I'm a Christian, and and I think what helped in the process. I also let go where I said to myself, look, whatever happens, I'm going to be okay. I'm letting, you know, I'm going to let go of this and I'm going to do the extra. If it works, eh, great. If it doesn't, you know, I'll get surgery. I'll, I'll be fine. I was maybe a little worried that it wouldn't. Well, I definitely was worried. Maybe it wouldn't work out, but I kind of like got to the place where I'm just going to let go, whether it's healing, whether it's something in your personal life, whether it's you know business related, I think the power you know, and this is a, I'm not in AA, but it's a big part of AA that process of letting go. I think letting go, and I'm sure that there are some great studies out there supporting this, is just is huge in the process of, of healing, self development, you name it. And I think I, I don't want to diminish the role of, of mentally and spiritually taking a step back and surrendering, if you will. Did Crummy Brothers fold or did you just say, hey, guys, I can't do this anymore? So it eventually folded. But what had happened, uh, we had an investor come in who had a completely different vision for where the brand wanted to go. And he also was semi-retired and wanted to come in and run the business. And it was fantastic for me because I was very conflicted. Because on one hand, I was running it. On the other hand, I wanted out. And so him coming in saying, I'm going to be an investor, but I also want to step in and run it. And I've got all this experience. It's like, fantastic. You know a lot more than me. You're the guy and it allows me to step away. So it was a, it was a great opportunity for me to fully step out and, and not feel like I was abandoning the co-founders who put a lot of faith in me. How long between that moment of stepping out and having the idea 
to start up Mind Body Green? So the Mind Body Green, the idea was already out there. I just didn't know what to do with it. Okay. So I had the idea for it when this was happening with Crummy, but all these things were happening at once, flying back, healing, Mind Body Green, but I didn't fully. So like the idea was out there. I was working on it. It was a side gig, if you will. It was like a side fun project. Right. But it didn't become a fully formed idea or business that I dedicated myself to 100% until September 2009. So like the way I think about business, and I talk about the launch, so I always say my buddy green launch in 2009, because that's when it really launched. Like anything, anything that's like, oh, it's an idea. It's maybe a domain. There's nothing there. We don't, we're not really doing much. I'm a fully formed. It's just like something that's out there. It's not fully formed yet. Was that the first name for it? Mind Body Green? Yeah. Mind Body Green happened to me. It was just like, that was easy. It was like, this is it. Mind Body Green. One word. This is wellness. Why is it? How is this available? And it was available on GoDaddy. It was available. It was available. So you talked to Colleen, your wife at the time, and you said, hey, give me six months. Yes. Six months. And and I I can figure this out. We'll be generating revenue. She was like, okay. And then uh, six months ended up being almost three years so mm-hmm. it was very tough being newly married and Colleen was fully supporting me. It was, it was earning no money. And it was, Colleen was also passionate about what we were doing. It was also, she was paying the bills. She was writing articles on the weekend. She was going to the same classes and trainings and immersions I was and meeting some of our earliest contributors and writing content. So she was very much part of the journey, but she was the one keeping the day job. I wrote the first articles. Our other co-founders, Tim and Carver, kept their day jobs. So I was the only, I was all in. I was like, I'm going all in. I what was, was the first article? Chakras. Okay. Because that's the, you had that massage and the woman told you about your chakra yeah, was tied, but, tied yeah. to money. Yes, yes, yes. And I was like, oh my God, wait, root chakra, money, worries, this whole, oh my God, this thing's got, this is all real. Holy cow. Yes. And so uh, it, it's funny how sometimes things that seem to be a little new agey and out there, uh, sometimes they can really be accurate and hit home. On the flip side, another part of like my healing journey when I was struggling with parasites and it was like terrible, uh, I was anxious, all, I had all these like issues, anxious, tired things I usually am not. Like I was looking for answers everywhere. I went to an iridologist once. Someone who like looks into your eye. I went like three times. And like after that, I was like, okay, this is going too far. (laughs) I got to stop going to all these people. I need to go and see Frank Lippman, who's a functional medicine doctor and who I love and is, you know, takes amazing care of me. And we got it right. But uh, it's a balance of of knowing when to, uh, what to take seriously and where to go down the rabbit hole and where to uh, remove yourself put it this way. One of my favorite lessons in our world comes from Littman. And I, I see the wellness world and, and health and well-being through through this quote, through this lens is, you know, be the conductor of your own healthcare orchestra. Don't put too much faith into any, you know, whether it's your award-winning Western medicine doctor or the shaman that everyone is dying to get into. I believe listen to everyone, but ultimately be the conductor of your own healthcare orchestra and have the information, the awareness 
to filter in and filter out. And so through that whole experience with dealing with parasites, I really, I went too far in every direction and ultimately landed with that belief system. And I, I think in our world, people get caught up in, well, this, you know, this guru or this person says this, and this is that, and you're searching, you're all over the place. And like, you need, you need to be, I believe in empowerment and empowerment through awareness and information. That was also one of your goals with starting this was to empower your readers and other people and give yeah. them that license to yes. be the conductor of yeah. their health yeah. orchestra. And also Absolutely. you said something interesting. You said you wanted to make it accessible for the guys you play basketball with. Yeah. Tone wise. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and that's still a core tenant. And I think people tend to look for, for, accessibility can be a dirty word sometimes to people where they think, Oh, it's got to be like, it's dumbed down to me. It's very important to provide the best information, but do so with a tone that most people, it's hard to beat everyone, but most people can relate to and connect with. And I think ultimately that's a superpower of my buddy green we give you great information and we'll talk about things that are super futuristic and cutting edge that you haven't heard of before, but we present it in a way that brings in the person who's maybe not on the bleeding edge and gets them interested and ultimately gives them the tools to take action. So like we're, we, we need, we're, we're, we're very utility focused and I think wellness you know, you've got to educate, you've got to empower, and you've got to provide some utility. Otherwise, I could just read articles about all this stuff all day. And then I sit back and say, well, what the hell do I do? I could read all <laughs> there's There's so much information. And I think that's a core tenet. And also, we believe in showing multiple points of view. Mm-hmm. Well, our friend, Will Cole, I love this. He said, you guys are like the United Nations of wellness. I said, I love that. Because it's important, especially like where we are in the world today, where it's very difficult to share an opposing point of view. And we take pride in having multiple points of view. We do have, you know, we've got some guardrails. You know, nutrition, for example, is, is a landmine. There are people out there who are vegan and have a very strong point of view about that. And there are people out there who are keto or paleo and a very strong point of view about that. And you know what? You're going to find both of those points of view on my buddy green. Cause mm-hmm. I go back to, we believe that you are the ultimate conductor of your healthcare orchestra. So we're going to present the best of everything in a responsible way and let you ultimately decide what's good for you. And in my experience, what's good for you changes over time. What worked for me in my twenties didn't work for me in my thirties. And now it's different again at 46. And so being aware and listening to your body. And one of my favorite tools for that is meditation. Lately, it's been breath work, yoga, getting in tune ultimately helps you make better decisions. It helps you tune into your body and make better decisions for you and your well-being. So in those first few years, when you were getting started, you mentioned that it wasn't until three years after you started that you became a proper company and was starting well, to make enough money to pay yourself a salary and all of that enough. Not, I don't even, I'd say proper, but enough money where I was actually able to pay myself, I think like 30, $30,000. 
Yeah. Did you have a did you have a, a business plan or metrics to kind of see what you were posting if it was going in the right direction, if you were climbing up the right tree? So looked at traffic every day. And in 2012, we started to see that's when it took us we didn't get to a hundred thousand unique visitors until January 2011. And I think we did five hundred and fifty thousand in January 2012. And then by the end of 2012, we were like over a million and then it was 2 million and then ultimately like a high of 15. And I think now we're around 10. So yeah, traffic was the metric and the traffic just because you have traffic doesn't mean you have revenue, but like we saw traffic and we were slowly, we were able to monetize it at least to, to pay me something and then eventually raise a little bit of capital to, to bring on my co-founders and, and Colleen in 13. Would you say that the the string of startup failures you had prepared you for being able to navigate this ship successfully? It helped. It helped. It definitely helped. <laughs> there were a lot of learnings in there, but you know, being an entrepreneur, it's a journey. I'm still on the journey. We still haven't figured out, you know, we're, we're in a much better place than we were six months ago or a year ago or six years ago, but you know, something else I've learned on this journey is, and this is also another good metaphor for life, you know, early on, I would find myself, if we just get to X or Y, then it's all going to be good. And your problems never go away. They just change. So that's something I stopped saying a couple of years ago. Like if we just get to this in traffic or this in revenue, it'll all be good. It's like, yeah, it's like, look, we have goals and metrics and, and we pride ourselves on on growth, but it doesn't mean it's all going to be rose petals on the other side of it, part of the journey. So yes, all those failures and startups, I learned a lot and I, I took a lot of those lessons into this, but I'm still learning. Every day is a learning experience. Yeah. I still make, make mistakes every day. You're multiple years in, you're a family man, you got a couple kids. How are you thinking about success these days? You're, we're a long ways away from the equity sure. trading. I just want to make as much money as possible. Sure. Days. You know, at, at the highest level, health and the happiness of our kids, you know, we're, we're very blessed. We have two healthy, happy little girls. Ellie is four. Grace is a year and a half. So like they're healthy and happy. And like as a parent, it's like if your kids are healthy and happy, it's like everything. And I feel for parents out there that, you know, have kids. It just... It, it, it's it's everything. So it starts with them. Like perspective definitely changed. They're they're good. The highest level, we're good. So like they're healthy and happy. Colleen and I are healthy and happy. Our family, everyone's healthy and happy. So it's like we're good. Work is good. Business is good. You know, we still have growing pains. We're still growing, but like ultimately, I think 2020 was a hell of a year with COVID. One of my favorite things to do with my muddy green is our revitalize event which you've been to numerous years we do it once a year it's like all of our friends of, of, in wellness come together for this amazing retreat retreat like experience for the first year we didn't do that and that that sucked i don't know when we're gonna we're gonna do it again but i don't know when but at any rate the, the world changed in a way where i think the world needs healing we believe in healing the world needs to get healthier with COVID, 88% of Americans are metabolically healthy. 
And we know that there are a disproportionate amount of African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, like whole BIPOC communities are disproportionately affected by COVID. And so there's a real need to get people healthy. And I think wellness, and, and a lot of it doesn't, what I love too about where we are is science has advanced in a way where we're coming back to, there are so many great things, practices that lead to better metabolic health that don't cost anything. So like James Nestor wrote the book on breath, like nasal breathing, amazing. Breathing through your nose, amazing for your immune system. And like doesn't cost, anyone can do it. So that's just one example. You know, there's been so much science lately around less is more with regards to working out. Like you need 11 minutes a day. It's like anyone can do that. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do triathlons, you know, to do anything like eating more ref- like beans. Beans are really inexpensive. At any rate, like we're at a place where the world needs to get healthier. Wellness has become serious business, if you will. I, I, I think it used to be pre-21, oh, you know, still like I said, it's a nebulous term, but like it was a little bit nebulous and like a little bit knock on wellness is it's exclusive, it's expensive, it's not for everyone. I don't take it seriously. It's about crystals and, you know, the west side of LA and it's serious business now. And mm-hmm. we're excited about that because I think there's an opportunity for us and we know this, that there's part of our audience, you know, not to mention what's going on like politically in this world, we think we have a role to play of healing in the political sense, in the spiritual sense, and literally to like the health of people right now, which has us like really excited and more, more so excited than ever. So it's like a different, I think, where I'm going is I think in the process and in the journey of being an entrepreneur, there are different things you get excited about, different things that upset you. And I think right now it's just, it's a weird time, but I think it's the most important time for us as a brand that that's has a mission right now. Last question here. You alluded to the fact that there were some downsides to working in a job where you you're fulfilled or you have your fulfillment. Sure. What were you referring to? You just, you don't stop, you know, <laughs> I'm passionate about what I do. I, you know, Colleen and I are very fortunate in that we actually work extraordinarily well together. We complement each other. All spouses is <laughs> that does not happen. I've known a lot of spouses in wellness who work together and then, you know, led to the demise of their relationship or their marriage. We actually work quite well together. But when you're so passionate about what you do, it's hard to turn it off. So we're al- I'm always thinking about work because to me, it's not work. Having kids helps. You know, for them, it's like, oh, they, they want to do their thing and you got to roll with it. And, and it definitely helps. It's a it's more than a pleasant distraction. Kids are such, such a joy, but that's the challenge. So like, I don't believe in work-life balance as an entrepreneur. I'm not the first person to say this. I believe in work-life integration. <laughs> I think, I think right. balance is not a real thing. Right. Yeah. Rich Roll and I talked a lot about that on our podcast interview, yeah, he's but like, there's no such thing. Yeah. And, and he, he's the same, like Rich is an all or not like we're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, if you're so, out there really trying to help people, there's no balance happening in, in yeah, the world. Yeah. I have more balance than Rich when it comes to working out. <laughs> Look, man, I want to wrap this back around to your childhood. You said Star Wars was your favorite oh, wow. toy. And it's interesting because I feel like what you do now at My Body Green 
is, you know, the thing that makes Star Wars compelling is like, it's, it's futuristic. You have people, they're just, they're still dealing with very human things and they're playing with these really interesting technologies, lightsabers and whatnot. But there's this force that is sort of like the hidden character, right? And it's like the intangible thing that can make the difference in whether or not someone succeeds or fails. And I feel like for you, you've introduced to the world the intangible idea of wellness, right? Now it's a thing, but back then it was this sort of like, do you see it? Do you not see it? Everything is connected, but is it really? We don't know. What is this thing? Chakras, whatever. And you kind of made that accessible for us in the same way that the, that Star Wars made the idea of a force accessible to us. So I just want to acknowledge wow. you. Very flattering. <laughs> I'll take it. George Lucas, watch out. George Lucas, watch out. I want to acknowledge you, man, for showing up as many times as you had to show up and say, yes, it's not easy. I can say as a 47-year-old man, an entrepreneur, that to go off and do your own thing as many times as you did, it's not for the faint at heart put it that way. <laughs> well, well, very much appreciated and well said it is not. If if you are, as I say, if you're considering being an entrepreneur, don't do it unless it's such a burning desire that it's killing you not to do it. If it's killing you not to do it, then go do it. If it's not, probably not, not the right thing. <laughs> but what's interesting too is that even the things that didn't work out ended up playing a role in the thing that that did work out. And I think that's an important takeaway as well from your story specifically, like the basketball and the, the, the cheating and all, all the failures, and the, even the, even the back stuff. Like if you hadn't been traveling around that much, you probably wouldn't have been as desperate to find some sort of solution that ended up leading to my body green. And like, I don't know, like the, the reason why we created our supplements line, I started to get, cause my father died of heart disease and I wanted to get more serious around that as I got older. And so I did a test with Lipman and I found out I had this, uh, I think everyone should get tested for homocysteine cause I don't think most people know it. I had uh, this marker homocysteine. Homocysteine is essentially inflammation and high homocysteine levels in the blood can lead to catastrophic blood clotting in the form of like a pulmonary embolism or a stroke or an aneurysm should be under 15. I was 63. Wow. And Lippman put me on a supplement plan where I went from 63 to 12. And I was That's fine. amazing. And I could have like, it was that I went from 63 to 23 in about 30 days and then eventually to 12 over three to four months. Wow. And it's one of those things, one, everyone should get tested because most people don't know to test for it. And it's a re relatively reasonable test, but I'm lucky, like, holy cow, they could have killed me, but it ended up fueling like my obsession with supplements and launching our supplement line. That was like a two year process. But like, I go back to one, like, I try to turn, uh, if there's a, a painful experience that, I, that I've been through, if I could turn that into something good, I always try to. And if it's regard to wellness, maybe it'll be a, you know either a piece of content or a new product line with my muddy green. If like I learn something and and I feel like I can help people, like I always try to do that. And I think going back to your statement, I I, I think of the the famous Steve Jobs quote: you, "You can only connect the dots going backwards. You can't connect them forward." And I think that that's another great quote. I, I think of quite a bit. It's very hard to see through the the crap when you're when you're in the middle of it. I think people who practice meditation have a better ability to do that, to kind of like be with that 
uncomfortable feeling and space and say, it's uncomfortable, this sucks, I'm feeling very angry, I'm feeling I'm going to sit with it, how does it feel, and get through it. But I think it's very hard for most mere mortals to do that, myself included. So, Well, you're inspiring a lot of other people to, to try all these things out, man. I'm just so grateful to be able to call you a friend. So thank you very much. I know you have to go. Look forward to the next time you get a chance to cross paths. Yeah, Light, thank you so much for being a friend, for being part of the greater Mind, Body, Green community. We love what you do. And hell, the world needs meditation right now in a big way. So guys, if you're on the fence with doing any sort of meditation with Light, get off the fence. This is the time. Well, I also feel like your book has a wonderful, I, I just read it a couple of days ago and has this wonderful timeless quality in it. You talk about pretty much everything across the board, meditation, diet, your yoga stuff, your healing your back pain. And, you know, I think it's a great primer for anyone who's looking to make a change, who's been living a more conventional lifestyle and you want to do something a little bit more holistic. So thanks so much for, for putting that out into the world. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you soon, brother. All Use right. the force. Thank you, Larry. Be well. Thank you for listening to my interview with Jason Walkup. I've been a fan of Mind Body Green for years. I've written for them. The book that I was referencing in the interview was Jason's memoir called Wealth, which is cleverly spelled W E L L T H. And it was an excellent read and it was very inspirational. So definitely pick up a copy of that. Jason also hosts the Mind Body Green podcast. So you want to check that out as well. If you haven't already left your rating and or review for At the End of the Tunnel, that is still the best way you can support this podcast and help other people find these inspirational stories. It literally only takes 10 seconds and all you do is you glance down at your screen, you click where it says At the End of the Tunnel, which is in purple. If you don't see that, it's probably because you're listening to this on a different app. But if you see a link that says Listen on the Apple Podcast app, click that link and you'll see the purple at the end of the tunnel and then scroll down past all the previous episodes to where it says ratings and reviews and all you got to do is tap the star on the far right and you've left a five star rating if you have a little extra time just write a few lines saying what you like about the podcast it really does help a lot i thank you in advance for taking those 10 seconds or one minute or whatever it takes to do that you are a legend in my eyes and to get the show notes and a transcript of my interview with jason you can go to lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years now. My next book is based on those daily doses. It's called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. It is available for pre-order. It comes out in May. And so if you're already on lightwatkins.com, you can go to the link for the book to find the purchase links for pre-ordering Knowing Where to Look. Thanks again for listening, guys, and for sharing this episode with your friends and your followers. I will see you back here next week, same time, same place, with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith. And I'm sending you lots of peace and love. Have a blessed day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. 
you'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.